Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. You lay in bed. The lights are off and your room has a nightly chill, but you're wrapped right up to your chin in blankets. You feel your head getting heavier and heavier as sleep digs its worming claws into your mind and drags you deeper and deeper into the pillow, pushing you closer and closer to the nightly abyss of sleep, the respite from stress and activity. Your legs and arms start to tingle warm and fuzzy and you feel as if it would take a mountainous effort to move. Just as you start sinking below the surface of your consciousness, you hear your floorboards creak. And then another floorboard, a little closer to the front of your bed, creaks. And then a third? Your eyes snap open and you spin your head around to face the danger. You scan the room, straining your eyes, forcing your pupils bigger and bigger, trying to suck in as much light as possible. Your room is dark, but you start to make out shapes. There's a hunched mound in the corner opposite your door. For a second, your heart stops. But then you realize it's only the dirty clothes you left, exploding out of the top of your hamper. You start to breathe a little easier. Your back begins to untense. The hairs on your neck lower. Maybe it was nothing. Maybe it was nothing at all you think. You look towards the door. It's open just a smidge, letting in an opaque sheet of light that cuts through the night. You stare at the warm light as your eyelids bob up and down. Your chin starts once more to drift down towards your chest. You're safe. And more importantly, you just want to sleep. There is no such thing as the boogeyman, you tell yourself. You're in your house. Nothing can get you there. Just in case you pull your left foot that is hanging outside the blankets back underneath, where it's safe. Your quilt is a Kevlar vest against evil creatures of the night. It's especially effective against the boogeyman, who you know isn't real. But wait, is that a breeze? When did it get so cold? You force your eyes open, half cemented shut with sleep, and you look over at your window. It's open. It wasn't open before. You feel your heart shoot up into your throat. It beats erratically. Your vision blurs with every beat and your nerves are on fire. Do you close the window? That means you have to step on the floor, which means something can grab you from under the bed. You can't do that. If the boogeyman grabs you, that's it. It's over. You don't know what happens, but you know it won't be good. Morning will come and your bed will be empty. And everyone will panic. At first, that is. And then they'll just forget you ever existed. These thoughts run through your mind, helping you to steal your resolve to close the damn window. 
In one swift motion, you take a deep breath in and hold it, throwing the sheets off of you. Placing your feet on the floor, you move them quickly, quicker than ever before, stepping once, twice, and three times over to the window. You reach it and slam it shut, and in one giant galloping leap, you land back in bed, exhaling your held breath and plunging yourself under the covers. Sound familiar? If there is one thing we can all relate to, it's the idea of the boogeyman. The pervasive figure of nightmare that hunts for feet hanging outside the covers, or an arm hanging over the bed. But you and I both know the boogeyman isn't real, right? Is that the truth? What do you think, my creepy little friend? Maybe you and I have just never met him. After all, there are an awful lot of people in the world. Maybe we've just gotten lucky. But throughout the 1960s, the English Channel Island of Jersey was infected with a plague of nightmarish attacks. A predatory, insidious, masked figure would enter the homes of Jersey at night. He would find a woman or young boy sleeping, and then he'd beat and sexually abuse them. Women of the island started sleeping with knives and guns under their pillows, trying to protect themselves from the Beast of Jersey. Men would talk about castrating the rapist if they found them. Locks on doors were changed. Windows were barred. The island, which many saw as a way to keep the stresses of London and the rest of England away, was now a five-mile by nine-mile wide fishbowl with 100,000 tiny guppies, and a shadowy figure lurking between them, plucking them away one by one in between the watchful eyes of others. And in November of 1957, the island of Jersey first encountered their boogeyman. An unnamed 29-year-old nurse was waiting for a bus at night. The roads were empty of most cars, but occasionally one would zoom past. The island was resting from its long, hard day. Perhaps it was the naive belief in the overwhelming goodness of others that was perpetuated after World War II. Or maybe it was the false sense of security that living in a small community offered. But the young nurse was alone at night, at a semi-rural bus stop, and unaware of her surroundings. So she didn't notice a man dressed in a long dark coat and a dark cap pulled down low to his eyes, obfuscating half of his face in the shadow of the brim. As she stood there waiting, the man dressed in shadows watched her, regarding her for a moment, making up his mind on what he should do. He walked up to her in the darkness of a November evening and dragged her into a nearby field where he sexually assaulted her. The attack was so brutal the 29-year-old nurse was left with severe injuries that resulted in stitches. But that encounter was only the beginning of Jersey's nightmare. Four months later, he struck again in March of 1958, attacking this time a 20-year-old woman. And then, as if divined by the hands of a clock, another four months later in July, he attacked for the third time, a 31-year-old woman. Both times he attacked them while they waited at bus stops. He dragged them into a field and sexually assaulted both of them. But unlike the first time, there was now a more bone-chilling element to make it easier. He now introduced the use of a noose, 
which he would drop over the heads of the victims, tighten, and then drag them by the rope, the victims choking if they tried to pull away. Whispers began to float around the small island like the evidence of a shipwreck on the shore. They didn't know who, what, or why, but there was the evidence of the tragic events laid bare. The husbands and sons of the island weren't yet discussing it at the pub, but the women certainly were discussing it amongst themselves, and it was always something that they heard might have happened to a friend of a friend. It wouldn't take just the debris of a shipwreck to shake the sensibilities of the citizens of Jersey. It would take a tsunami of blood and bodies in the water for them to finally admit they had their very own boogeyman prowling the small island. After the third attack, there was a sigh of collective relief as the attacks seemed to stop. For a year, in fact, there were no more cases of sexual assault. Perhaps it was a drifter who had moved on. Or perhaps they hadn't happened at all. That, in fact, maybe it was just an urban legend. A small case of panic that passed verbally around the island. But just as the bones were being shuffled to the side, the attack started once more. In August of 1959, a 15-year-old girl was walking home one evening in the parish of Grooville when she, like the women waiting at the bus stops, was attacked. A noose was slipped around her throat and then tightened as she was dragged off into a field where she was raped by the mystery assailant. Then again, in October of 1959, a 28-year-old woman was attacked. Like the others, a noose was placed around her neck and she was dragged out into a field where he once again sexually assaulted her. But unlike the other women, before he was able to take things further, she began to fight and struggle. Finding her moment of opportunity, she escaped the tragic and vile fate that awaited her shortly. The whispers on the island became a low drone of quiet voices, which then grew to discussion, and then exploded in a cry for action. There was a vicious predator that lived amongst them on the island. An island that was meant to keep the dangers of big cities out was now trapping a monster with its prey. It was at this point after the fourth attack that police pieced together a profile based on the descriptions given to them by the victims. According to the police profile, the man was in his early to mid-40s, 5'6", and had an Irish accent. He wore a rope or cord around his waist and had a musty smell about him. He would often restrain his victims by tying their hands together and would then slip a noose around the neck of his victims to control them more easily. This profile didn't do much in the way of refining the search effort of the police, nor did it do much to ease the denizens of Jersey, each now looking to their neighbors, wondering if they truly knew them. Their houses were all neatly kept, the families were prosperous. It was a community built on the microclimate of the Gulf Stream which kept it warm in the English Channel, which then in turn provided them warmth all year long making their growing season long as a result, and lining their pockets with agricultural exports to England and France. They were a religious community. Who could be the rapist? Why would they do this? Those sorts of things just didn't happen. 
But despite the profile given out to police, the attacks then again resumed in 1960. This time though, they were much more terrifying, violating the community's sense of security in even more disturbing ways. They assumed it couldn't get any worse. They hoped it wouldn't. But hope is the mother of despair. There is a universality to the idea of the boogeyman. He has no real face. In fact, it doesn't matter what he looks like. Because the idea that the boogeyman is different for every single person is one of the most powerful agents in the propagation of this myth and the execution of his agenda. But he isn't real. We know that. Or at least we think he isn't. The boogeyman is an idea. But ideas have a way of manifesting action, and in fact, the beast that prowled the island of Jersey, the boogeyman that terrorized the isle for more than a decade, was born out of stories and ideas himself. In 1960, the attacks evolved. No longer were they just vicious and horrific, but now they were actually becoming nightmares, manifested into reality. In 1960, the modus operandi of the attacks suddenly changed. No longer was the Beast of Jersey attacking women waiting for buses or attacking those walking alone at night. Now, children in particular were being attacked in their own bedrooms. On February 14, 1960, in the early hours of the morning, when the world was most asleep, while mist and fog swirled around the island, waiting to be burned by the morning sun, the Beast of Jersey, the boogeyman himself, crept into the home of a 12-year-old boy through his bedroom window. Without making a sound, without alerting the parents sleeping just a short distance away, the boy awoke to a rope being placed around his neck. Before he could scream or perhaps paralyze thinking it was a nightmare, without a sound, he was led by the rope out of his window and into a field where the young boy, the child, was violated and tragically raped. The island was left no time to breathe and a month later a mother was awoken by a telephone ringing on the bottom floor of her cottage home at 12.30 a.m. She put on her robe and she softly padded down the stairs apprehensively to answer the phone. Calls in the middle of the night are never good, but when she picked up the telephone she wasn't greeted with the report of a sick or dying relative. Instead, all there was to respond to her inquisitive hello was a dial tone. She hung up the phone and returned to bed but roughly an hour later was reawakened by a sound downstairs. Once again, she put on her robe and turned the light on, this time a little unsure what had made the noise, and slowly descended the staircase. As she reached the bottom, the light above her flickered and died. Suddenly, afraid of the dark once more, and perhaps feeling small and childlike, she heard another noise come from the living room. Suddenly, a man appeared in front of her and grabbed her. He demanded money and then tied her hands together. Her 14-year-old daughter heard the struggle downstairs and popped out of her room to investigate. 
The mother screamed, trying to warn her daughter away, but the daughter instead ventured down the stairs anyways. The mother struggled free and instinctively ran for help. Her daughter, heartbreakingly, did not. When the mother, who had heard the noises and been attacked, returned, she found her daughter crying hysterically. The 14-year-old girl had also been raped. I'm sorry, but I just can't bring myself to describe any more attacks. This one beyond all others breaks my heart. And while I want to share with you all the details, to have you fully engulfed in the story I'm telling, I just can't continue to narrate these. By now, my friend, you know the terror and agony these poor children and women suffered. You know the overwhelming evil with which the shadowy figure acted. I don't think I'm doing you a disservice by fast-forwarding at this point. The profile prepared by police some time ago didn't do much to assuage the fears and anxieties of the islanders, but instead it felt like a powder keg, like the entire population was waiting and willing to perform their own witch hunt. It didn't matter, in fact, if it did any good, or purely was just a ritual of responsibility. The fathers and uncles on the island felt they owed their collective children and wives. Then perhaps it was over a beer in a pub, or maybe it was a collective eye of suspicion that was cast on an odd outlier in the community, as they often do. But eventually, suspicions fell on Alphonse Legastelois. Alphonse was an eccentric agricultural worker and fisherman, and people often saw him walking alone at night. But instead of seeing someone enjoying the evening air, the short leap in logic to associating him with the attacks that were plaguing the Knights of Jersey was made. Alphonse was arrested, and over the course of a few months, police searched his home 12 times, each time finding absolutely nothing that would indicate he was the culprit. But minds had been made up. Scotland Yard formally announced they had cleared their suspicions of Alphonse, and just as anyone on the island began to divert their attention, there was a neighbor or a store clerk ready to affirm their previous suspicions. It just had to be Alphonse. Panic had gripped Jersey tight, and the witch hunt had found their target. Whether it was one citizen or more, Alphonse's cottage was burnt to the ground. But in my mind, when I imagine a citizen thinking his actions were heroic, marching up to the home of someone he thought deserved to be dispossessed by their community, and setting his home ablaze, that the rest of Jersey marched with him in spirit, emboldening his actions. Because while it was one or two individuals lighting Alphonse's home on fire, it was the physical manifestation of the years of collective panic and fear that compelled him forward. Fearing for his life, Alphonse Legastelui fled the island. Quickly enough though, the community found their suspicions to be aimed at the wrong target. Alphonse was now gone, but the Beast of Jersey was not, as the attacks continued. It wasn't until July 17, 1971, that police and investigators got lucky, when police noticed a car running a red light. 
Police began to pursue the car, and the car sped down the road, trying to escape the police. But on an island so small there isn't much space to run to, and the pursuing police officer quickly and successfully pulled the car over. When they finally stopped the vehicle and pulled the driver out, handcuffing him, in the back seat they found a mask. A mask that described the descriptions given by those attacked. And the driver of the stolen vehicle? His name was Edward Pinell. Edward Pinell was born in 1925. He was a construction worker, and his wife owned and ran the La Preference foster care home with her mother. By the accounts of his neighbors and friends, Edward was an empathetic and caring man who often played with the children at the foster care home, dressing up as Santa at Christmas time and sitting them on his lap. But what his friends didn't know was that Edward was rotten inside, sick and twisted, and I'd like to imagine the cherry pit of a soul he had, stained by what he had done, was ready to fall right out of him at any minute. Edward, for more than a decade, had led a double life. What the police didn't know, what his neighbors didn't know, and what you didn't know, my friend, is that the children whose homes he snuck into, and the women he dragged away in the night, those weren't his only victims. His wife owned a foster care home filled with vulnerable children from which he could pluck. A previous resident of the La Preference care home later came forward saying that Edward Pinell would often stalk the hallways and the maze of bedrooms and watch the children through tiny peepholes he'd crudely drilled in the walls. He'd quietly enter their rooms while they slept. He would stand over them, and eventually he would attack them, dragging them away quietly. Another former resident said the children stayed quiet. They were afraid they wouldn't be believed, that they'd be accused of lying. And I don't blame them. Not only were they only children without a home or sense of security vulnerable to the whims of their caretakers, but Edward wasn't the only cause of terror in their life. While Edward's wife Joan always maintained she knew nothing of Edward's double life, According to former residents of the foster care home, she was also active in abusing the children, not sexually but emotionally and physically, often beating them when they displeased her. Following Edward Pinell's arrest, he was convicted of 13 counts of rape, sodomy, and abuse, and as such was sentenced to 30 years in jail. After his release, Edward Pinell tried to return to Jersey, thinking they'd forgotten his offenses. But he was forced to leave and move to the Isle of Wight, where he lived free and unaffected by his previous crimes, and where he died in 1994. So, my friend, do you believe in the Boogeyman yet? Maybe the idea is enough to make it real. The idea that someone can lurk into your room. The idea that you can be whisked away through your window. Edward Pinell was a man of ideas, but they were the worst kind of ideas. His crimes were born of an idea modeling himself after the murderous French folklore villain Bluebeard. He aspired to gain the same level of notoriety through his acts of sexual and physical abuse 
to become a man of myth through his attacks on the women and young boys of Jersey. His own physical transformation reflecting his wildly misguided and evil ambitions. During his first attack, he was dressed in a dark cloak and a hat. Just a man. But by the end of his reign of terror over the island, he donned a cartoonish and nightmare-inducing outfit. Edward Pinell became the Beast of Jersey when he slipped into his dark trench coat, when he popped the clasps shut on his spiked bracelets, and when he dropped the misshapen and molten mask over his face, making it appear in the dark as if his eyes were dispossessed of a face beneath the plastic visage. And when the shadows hit it just right in the moonlight, it looked like the flesh was falling from his face. Edward Pinell wasn't truly a monster, though his actions were monstrous. Instead, he was a small and pathetic man who wished to make himself feel larger than life with costumes and acts of power and dominion over others. But when the light was shone on him, there really wasn't ever an Edward Pinell at all. By trying to become more than a man, by trying to become a legend, through his own actions, he lost his humanity making him less than human. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, Every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door. (laughs) 